Uh, you can see that I've got substantive interests and I've got mythological interests, but really my niche area is uh, substantive mythological synergy. That's a phrase that I coined in a uh, special issue of uh, Contemporary Ed Psych. So basically my argument is that some of the best mythological uh, research is based on the development of ways to answer substantive questions, that it's a really good driver of mythological research. But new methodology also a, uh, uh, give all sorts of interesting ways of looking at new and revisit old uh, substantive areas. And the synergy between these two is particularly important. And it's also a bit of a dying art in that I think that what is happening uh, in the social sciences at least is that there, the gap between the substantive and the lithological is getting larger and larger. And so uh, the niche area that I've tried to define for myself is putting these two areas together. Together. So let me now go on to the actual presentation. Uh, I'm going to be talking about my research in student evaluations of teaching. Uh, this is an area that I've worked in for a long time, and so one of the things I want to do is to sort of model what uh, a large overarching uh, research program that, expand, that extends many years might look like. So I'll begin by giving you uh, an overview of what uh, what my conclusions are. So here's a uh, a brief overview of the topics that I'm going to be talking about, and. Uh, if we, uh, if we talk about the purposes of student evaluations, uh, everybody at least pays lip service to the fact that student evaluations are the main purposes to improve teaching effectiveness. Uh, however, they're much more controversially used for personnel decisions. In some universities, they're used for student course selection. And certainly, you'll see from my research that they're used as an outcome or process of a research uh, for research on teaching. The first purpose is nearly universal, the others aren't. I'll give you a brief summary of what I'm hoping you'll uh, uh, get from this lecture. So my research, some 50 or 60 articles in this area, plus reviews of thousands of articles in this area, led me to conclude that student evaluations are multidimensional, reliable and stable, primarily of the teacher who does the teaching rather than the course that is taught, valid in relation to a variety of indicators, relatively unaffected by a lot of uh, variables, hypothesizes, biases, and seen to be useful by students for use in course selection, by administrators, and by teachers as feedback about their teaching. So let me uh, start off by talking about the dimensionality issue. Effective teaching clearly is a multidimensional construct, and so it's hardly surprising that sets are also multidimensional. For example, a teacher may be organized but lack enthusiasm, and this should be accurately reflected in the student evaluations. The SEEK instrument that I uh, developed is a multidimensional instrument, and here's the scales or factors that it's designed to measure. 
information I refer to student evaluations of teaching as sets. So information from sets depends upon uh, the content of the items. Poorly worded items uh, will not provide useful information. If a survey contains a hodgepodge of different items and uh, the student evaluations are summarized by an average of these uh, diverse items, then there's no basis for knowing what it is that's being measured. The SEEK instrument that I developed consists of these nine multi-item scales and two overall rating items. For personnel decisions, uh, there's a controversy as to whether a multidimensional profile of uh, scores or a single summary score is more useful. However, for feedback uh, for teachers, use in student course selection, and use in research on teaching, there appears to be general agreement that a, a profile of distinct components of student evaluation based on an appropriately constructed multidimensional instrument is more useful than a single summary score. So fact analytics support for the SEEK instrument is very strong. More than 30 published factor analysis of the SEEK responses have identified the factors that it's designed to measure. The SEEK uh, studies using the applicability of paradigm have uh, demonstrated the SEEK uh, factor structure in lots of different educational settings in different countries and different settings. Teachers were also asked to evaluate their own teaching effectiveness on the same SEEK score as completed by their students, and the, fact, the same factors came out of the teacher self-evaluations. So how well does the SEEK factor structure generalize across different courses? Well, I took a sample of 25,000 classes, close to a million questionnaires, conducted factor analysis for the total sample and for each of 21 subsamples uh, of unique groups of teachers who varied in academic discipline, psychology, engineering, and so forth, and level undergraduate and graduate. The factor analysis for the total sample in each of the 21 subsamples all identified identify the same nine unique uh, seek factors. So the seek factor structure is very robust. The debate about which components of teaching effectiveness can and should be measured clearly hasn't been resolved. However, there is a consistency in those that are identified in responses to the most carefully designed instruments. Homemade surveys constructed by lecturers or committees are rarely evaluated in relation to rigorous uh, psychometric considerations and revised accordingly. They fail to provide a comprehensive evaluation of set dimensions. This undermines their usefulness, particularly as diagnostic feedback. It's also important to note that the SEEK form provides additional items that can be selected from an item bank or items written by the instructor. In this way, it provides a compromise between uniformity and uh, flexibility. Let me move on to the issue of reliability and stability. The reliability of uh, sets is most appropriately determined from raters of inter-rater agreement, that is the generalizability of ratings over students in the same class. The reliability of the class average response depends upon the number of students rating the class. Given a sufficient number of students, set reliability compares favorably with the best objective test. However, even for small classes, you can get adequate reliability uh, by averaging the results from several different classes. Now, here's a real interesting policy-related issue that I'll come back to later on, but let me talk about the focus of this now. What's the relative importance of the teacher who does the teaching in the course that's being taught? 
To look at this, I asked, how highly rated are sets in two different courses taught by the same instructor, the same course taught by different teachers on two different occasions? For the overall instructor rating, the same teacher teaching the same course on two occasions, the correlation was 0.72. This is a combination of teacher and course effect. The same teacher teaching two different courses, the correlation was 0.61. This is a more pure measure of the teacher effect. The same course taught by two different teachers, the correlation was essentially zero. This is a course effect. Similar results were found for the overall course rating. So in summary, sets primarily reflect the teacher who is doing the teaching, not the course that's being taught. This has very important implications for their use. They are very good for evaluating teachers, but apparently not so good for evaluating courses. Long-term stability. Do former teachers view effective teaching uh, differently after graduation when they've had a chance to use the materials? Cross-sectional studies show good agreement between retrospective ratings of former students and those of current students. In a true longitudinal study that was a relatively unique study, uh, the same students evaluated classes at the end of a course and several years later. The end of term ratings in 100 courses correlated 0.83 with the subsequent uh, ratings. This correlation approached the reliability of the student evaluations. The mean ratings were similar on both occasions. So student evaluations by the same student at the end of the course and several years after graduation agree very well. Cross-sectional studies at different levels of education suggested teaching effectiveness declines with experience and age. So teachers are not like good red wine that gets better with age. Uh, and this is actually a pretty damning uh, indictment to the educational uh, uh, discipline. Uh, I looked at this in a true longitudinal study. This is a pretty unique uh, uh, study. I had 195 teachers who were evaluated at least once a year for 13 consecutive years, an average of 31 classes per teacher. So here's a graph of the results. So each of the 195 gray lines represents the ratings of one teacher over, 30, uh, over 13 years. The Red line is the grand mean over all 195 teachers. The green line represents ratings of one teacher over 13 years that were consistently one standard deviation below the mean. The blue line represents ratings of one teacher over 13 years that were consistently one standard deviation above the mean. For most teachers, there was no systematic increase or decrease in the ratings over the 13 years. This is really remarkably stable that, uh, that this now, this has got good news and bad news uh, because these people were getting the results of student evaluation, so they weren't getting any better. But on the other hand, there's almost, well, there's almost no decline. So at least uh, that part of it. So maybe, maybe they did some good. But we'll come back, we'll come back to that, that bit later. Uh, yes. Okay, now with this research, I also looked at profile generalizability. 
uh, uh, thus far we've just considered individual seek scales. Using the longitudinal data, we test whether each teacher has a unique profile of seek scales and how this varies over time. Profile refers to, profile level refers to the tendency for all scores to be high or low. And so if somebody gets high scores and everything, they're a good teacher, and that's a level effect. Profile shape, which is more interesting, refers to the tendency for systematic patterns specific to a particular teacher, relatively higher on organization, relatively lower on enthusiasm, for example. The results show that each teacher has a characteristic profile that is consistent across different courses and consistent over time and distinct from the profiles of other teachers. And so the profile was nearly as consistent as the level. And so both of the shape and the profile, the level and the profile were highly consistent over time. Let me now move on to the issue of validity. Evaluating teaching, is, uh, effective teaching is a hypothetical construct, uh, so there's no single indicator of it. Hence, the validity of sets and other indicators of effective teaching must be validated through a construct validity approach. Sets are positively related to many criteria of teaching effectiveness, including ratings of former students, student achievement, multi-section validity studies, teacher self-evaluations of their own teaching effectiveness, and observations of trained observers on specific processes such as teacher clarity. I'll begin by talking about the multi-section validity paradigm. So let's consider the validity of sets in relation to student learning. Now, you can't easily evaluate student learning across lots of different disciplines, particularly at the university level, because there's no single criterion. And our way of getting around this was what's called the multi-section validity study. In this, there's many sections of the same course, typically large introductory courses with many parallel uh, sections. Each section is taught by a separate teacher, but the same course outline textbooks, objective, and final examination. Students are randomly assigned to sections and clearly don't know who the teacher is uh, ahead of time. Uh, the final exam, there's a common final exam that reflects all the common objectives. Students evaluate teaching effectiveness on a well-standardized instrument before the final grade. And then the section average student evaluations are related to section average exam performance, controlling for pretest uh, measures. So the research question is, are sets valid in relation to objective measures of student learning when plausible counter-explanations are not viable? Cohen did a classic meta-analysis of multi-section validity studies. Student achievement was consistently correlated with sets. For a subset of 41 well-designed studies, correlations between achievement and sets were substantial, many correlations more than 0.5. This demonstrated that sets are substantially related to student uh, learning and constitutes an uh, important support for their validity. Another area that I've looked at quite a bit is teacher self-evaluations. I use teacher self-evaluations as part of the diagnostic uh, feedback that I use uh, uh, for teachers, but we also did uh, this in terms of validating the student evaluations. So sets have been validated in relation to teacher self-evaluations. In two studies, teachers evaluated their own teaching using SEEK instruments were evaluated by uh, their students. This was 
those uh, two different courses or two different uh, studies, each with several hundred teachers each. Separate factor analysis of teacher and student responses identify the same seek factors. Student-teacher agreement on all dimensions with significant supporting convergent validity. Student-teacher agreement with specific to each dimension supporting divergent validity. The mean differences between student and teacher responses were small. Student ratings were not systematically higher or lower. So this supports, uh, from another source, the validity of the student evaluations. Here's an interesting issue here, uh, looking at peer ratings based on classroom visitation. In a classic study at a new university, John Centra compared uh, student evaluations and peer ratings, six observations by three uh, different peers, uh, two each, but found almost no agreement between different peers. So the reliability of the peer evaluations was close to zero. In a review, Murray concluded uh, that Compared to student evaluations, peer reviews based on actual classroom visitation were less sensitive, reliable, and valid, more threatening and disruptive to faculty morale, and more affected by non-instructional uh, factors such as research productivity. Murray found that ratings by trained observers tended to be more reliable, but Murray uh, found that it took 20 or more observer reports to get minimally reliable ratings. These findings nearly su uh, neither support nor refute the validity of sets, but suggest that peer ratings based on classroom visitation are not valid indicators of teaching effectiveness. Now, if you want to know more about classroom visitation and observations, you should talk to Kathy, who has done lots of work in this area in the school setting. It's not that you can't get uh, reliable uh, observations, but you have to have highly trained observers. You have to be looking at very specific uh, target uh, behaviors or outcomes that we're looking at. And so this isn't what's typically done. And so the peer, peers can play an important role in terms of evaluating syllabus and whether it's up to date and so forth. But they're not particularly useful uh, for, the, for classroom observations. In support of the validity of student evaluations, student evaluations are positively related to many criteria of effective teaching, including ratings of former students, student achievement, multi-section validity studies, teacher self-evaluations of their own teaching effectiveness, observations of trained observers on specific processes such as teacher clarity. Now, this isn't exactly a validity uh, issue, but it's a really important issue. Teaching and research are typically seen as the most important uh, products of university faculty. We can take two extreme views that, uh, that a teacher can't be uh, a first-rate teacher unless they're actively engaged in scholarship. And from this perspective, maybe you would expect teaching and research to be positively correlated. An opposite perspective might be that uh, uh, teachers, would-be teachers spend all their time doing research rather than preparing for teaching, and they neglect their teaching in order to get publications out in a publish or perish environment. And from that perspective, you might, consider, you might think that they would make, be negatively related. 
Uh, with John Hattie, I did the classic meta-analysis, the most extensive review of this relationship, based upon some 500 correlations between teaching and research. We found that the mean correlation between teaching effectiveness and research productivity was almost exactly zero. The lack of correlation was consistent across different disciplines, different types of university, different indicators of research, and different components of teaching effectiveness. Um, I had a model uh, of counterbalancing effects. Uh, basically, I said that the ability to be a good teacher and a, uh, be good at research are positively correlated. Uh, the time spent on the two and maybe the reward structure is negatively related. That effectiveness is a, a, a combination of ability and time allocation. And so that the positive relationship between abilities in the two areas and the negative uh, correlation and time spent in the two areas results in little correlation in terms in terms of uh, actual effectiveness in the two areas. Uh, we did some tests of this model. Uh, uh, time on research is positively related to research productivity. The more time you spend, the more productive you are. It's not related to teaching effectiveness, and it's negatively related to time on teaching. Time on teaching, here's the really bad one, time on teaching is not related to teaching effectiveness. So the more time you spend preparing uh, uh, for uh, teaching doesn't improve your teaching. Time on teaching is negatively related to research productivity and negatively related to time on research. So there's some, some real issues here about uh, uh, that we'll go into when we talk a little bit about how to improve teaching uh, uh, effectiveness. The, we followed this up. We didn't like these studies, uh, these results. What we wanted was that there was clear support for a nexus between the two. And we've often been shot as the messenger uh, on the basis of our research saying that they're essentially unrelated uh, activities. So we did a much more comprehensive study at, the, uh, at an Australian university where we had uh, much richer data. So we had very rich data on publications. We had uh, student ratings of everybody that was in the university. And uh, so we were able to look at this nexus. We, and we constructed a whole variety of new variables, including uh, what we call nexus scales, the belief that teaching contributes to research or research contributes to teaching. But uh, the results essentially supported the previous results. We even asked uh, teachers to evaluate, uh, academics to evaluate their own teaching effectiveness and their own research productivity. And anybody that collects survey data knows that there's a positive halo effect when you ask uh, people to rate two different characteristics about themselves. And even these were almost uncorrelated. So uh, we came to the conclusion that there wasn't much uh, evidence for, the, uh, for this nexus. Uh, we argue that universities should set as a mission goal the improvement of the nexus between teaching and research. And here's some suggestions, we, uh, some strategies suggested that may do this. Now, this is a really critical variable. Uh, stepping back, I would argue that there is no justification for a research university existing, including Oxford and all the other research universities, unless there is this nexus. Uh, because we can do research more efficiently, maybe more effectively, in research only 
institutions where we're not bothered by administration and students. We can probably do teaching more, at least more efficiently, in uh, teaching only institutions where we're not lumbered with publish and perish short of existence. So uh, the nexus between these two is the justification for having a research university. Now, obviously, I'm not advocating that we should do away from research universities. That's been my whole life. Uh, but I am arguing that uh, universities need to take more seriously this nexus and support this nexus. And it seems to me that we're going in the opposite direction. It seems to me that research universities are bifurcating the research and uh, teaching role to a greater extent. Let me move on to the issue of potential biases. Um, there's lots of unsubstantiated myths about potential biases in student evaluations. Uh, these are typically atheoretical, methodologically flawed, and not based on well-articulated definition of bias. One such allegation is to obtain good uh, evaluations. Teachers need only to dumb down the courses and the demands placed on students. Support for a bias hypothesis must be based on a construct validity approach. Uh, you can't prove causation from correlation. If the uh, relations are consistent over multiple indicators of a teaching effectiveness, student evaluations, teacher self-evaluations, test scores, and so forth, then there may be the, uh, then the source may be a valid influence on teaching effectiveness. If relations for a particular background variable vary systematically and uh, logically for different set factors and match a priori predictions, then the results may support a construct validity of sets rather than a bias. So let me illustrate uh, how we decontextualize, we unpack some of these relationships, uh, looking, first of all, uh, at whether or not class size bias sets. Um, class size is most negatively related to group interaction and individual rapport. But these are the set factors that should be most correlated with uh, class size. So this isn't too surprising. In contrast, class size is positively related to some set factors like organization. The same pattern is found for class size and teacher self-evaluations, their own teaching effectiveness. Also, there's an interesting nonlinear component. Student evaluations decline and then increase for larger classes. For the very largest classes, the student evaluations are quite positive. So I would argue that class size has a valid uh, effect on some aspects of, of effective teaching that is accurately reflected in the sets and teacher self-evaluations of their own teaching. So here's a graph of the relationship between class size and overall teaching. It shows a nonlinear relation uh, for very large uh, classes, rating are as, are as high or higher than small classes. And even this is fairly complicated because uh, when we went and did some more uh, uh, interview sort of work, one of the things that we found was that the very high ratings for uh, very large classes, may the, uh, the direction of causality may be uh, opposite in that uh, some teachers have a reputation for being really good teachers, and their class size grows because they're really good teachers. Uh, we also had another situation where uh, in the physics class, the student evaluations were quite high, were higher for the undergraduate large lecture classes than the upper division classes. So we went and talked to them and asked them what was happening. And uh, the, uh, there were so few people wanting to major in physics that the physics department was going to be losing some of their academic staff because 
because of the small enrollments and they needed more physics majors. And so they got together as a department and uh, put all of their best teachers in the large introductory classes to reinforce uh, having physics majors. So these, these correlations can get quite interesting and uh, complicated. A, a real interesting one is the workload difficulty. This is not a bias because the observed relations are in the wrong direction. Easy classes get worse ratings, not better ratings. There is a similar pattern is found for workload difficulty in teacher self-evaluations of their own teaching effectiveness. There's also a small nonlinear component in this relation whereby sets increase as workload increases to an optimal level, flatten out, and then decline for very high loads, high uh, levels of workload. These results are consistent with theory and have important implications for effective teaching. We also found uh, in subsequent research that uh, useful workload is more positively related to sets, but busy work, non-useful workload is not. Uh, the workload difficulty effect is in the opposite direction to that predicted by a bias interpretation. So we argue that it's not a bias. So here's a graph of, uh, of the relationship, uh, the nonlinear relationship. For low and average levels of workload, uh, increasing low workload leads to higher ratings. It's only for the very high level that increasing workload. So these are more than, these are two standard deviations above the mean. Uh, high levels of workload that increasing workload leads to lower ratings. And one might argue that, uh, that workloads at that uh, level may be, in fact, counterproductive. Obviously, this is too much detail for you to take in, but this is a, uh, uh, here I provide a summary of results based on potential biases of student evaluation. In general, there's little support for the contention that sets are biased by characteristics that are unrelated to teaching effectiveness. Now let me move back to a little bit to the substantive methodological synergy. You can probably see that that substantive methodological synergy uh, carries through in a lot of the research that I've done. One of the things that I've done that's fairly, uh, fairly recently is I've uh, been working on a new uh, statistical procedure called exploratory structural equation model. And some of you who went to the quant sig session uh, uh, will have heard about that. Well, that was a particularly interesting juxtaposition with uh, the uh, with the student evaluation research, uh, what I was able to what, what was had happened was that the seek instrument was based on exploratory uh, factor analysis, and a lot of old uh, psychological instruments are based on exploratory uh, factor analysis. Uh, more recently, uh, confirmatory factor analysis is mostly swept away. Uh, 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 exploratory factor analysis because of all the wonderful things that you can do, but there's also some very important limitations to confirmatory factor analysis. It assumes that every item measures one and only one factor and there's no cross-loadings and so on and so forth. And one of the uh, criticisms of the SEEK instrument was that although the exploratory factor analysis fit quite well, the, uh, the confirmatory factor analysis didn't fit very well. And uh, so this was sort of an embarrassment because obviously confirmatory factor analysis is something that I do a lot. The ESIM uh, approach that has been, was first introduced 
released in 19, in uh, 2010, so just the last couple of years, uh, integrates the best aspects of the confirmatory factor analysis and the exploratory uh, factor analysis. And so I was able to show uh, that the ESIM did fit the factor structure. And there were really some important uh, differences. In particular, the C correlations were substantially inflated with the confirmatory factor analysis. So the median correlation was 0.72. And this having factors that are this correlated uh, undermines their diagnostic uh, purpose because they're so highly correlated it's hard to distinguish. But the ESIM uh, uh, was able to show that the correlations when you allowed the cross-loadings uh, was only 0.34, so a huge difference in terms of uh, the usefulness in terms of discriminant validity. And then uh, in this, and uh, this was the first empirical demonstration of ESIM, so uh, it was primarily a methodological study, but it also was very important substantively. So we had this huge archive of a million uh, seek responses. We showed that there were big differences in the correlation. We showed that the uh, factor uh, uh, was uh, structure was invariant uh, over uh, uh, different periods of time that it was used, uh, and we were able to do a whole variety of different advanced statistical techniques with, within the context of ESIM. And, uh, so this was an example of the substantive methodological synergy approach. Let me now move on to the next issue, probably the most important one, uh, use of student evaluation to improve teaching effectiveness. So there's been many feedback studies uh, uh, in which teachers are randomly assigned to experimental feedback and control no feedback groups. Student evaluations are collected. Ratings are returned to feedback teachers, augmented perhaps by consultation. Groups are compared on end-of-term ratings and perhaps other variables. Uh, now, in a meta-analysis of these studies, teachers who received midterm feedback were subsequently rated about a third of a standard deviation higher than control teachers. Studies that augmented feedback with consultation produced substantially larger differences, but other methodological difference, uh, issues didn't have much difference in these effects. In two early SEEK studies using multiple sections of the same course, in this first study, we, uh, we, all we did was an abbreviated survey that was administered midterm, uh, and the results were simply uh, returned to teachers. The impact of the feedback was positive, but very modest. In study two, we met with the feedback group to discuss student evaluations and strategies for improvement. Uh, the feedback group rated teaching effectiveness more favorably at the end of the term performed better on a common final exam in this multi-section validity study, and experienced more favorable affective items, feelings of course uh, mastery and plans to pursue and apply the subject. Study two was important because it demonstrated that augmented feedback improves student learning and subject affect as well as subsequent student evaluations. This is such an important area that I developed a prototype uh, feedback consultation intervention. Uh, teachers are randomly assigned to groups, so it's a true uh, random control trial study. At time one, the middle of semester one, the time two, the end of semester two, and time three, the end of semester two, all teachers were evaluated and rated uh, the importance of each seek factor and were evaluated by their students. 
At time two, feedback teachers selected target seek factors that, so there's nine seek factors. They selected some that they're going to work on. They selected ones that were important to the teacher uh, based on their self-evaluations, had low ratings, needed to be improved, and were, quote, appropriate areas to target improvement uh, efforts. Uh, each uh, teaching, the teaching idea packets for that area, for the area were given to teachers for uh, the factors that they had chosen. Each, uh, each of the SEEK uh, packets contained up to 40 strategies based on interviews that we had done with uh, outstanding uh, teachers, teachers who had won awards for their teaching effectiveness. With the consultant, the teacher selected a few strategies for each target SEEK factor and how they would be implemented. The consultant summarized the SEEK factors and improvement strategies targeted by the teacher, and these were followed up in writing uh, and or by phone. Now, because, um, because teachers only targeted one of uh, one or two areas, uh, interpretations of the overall teacher rating were most straightforward. There, the effects were significant for all four overall uh, ratings, effect sizes between 0.4 and 0.5. Um, now, let's see how the intervention worked with the target scales, that is, the scales that uh, the teachers chose for the intervention compared to non-target scales. So at pretest, uh, ratings on target scales were much lower than non-target scales for all groups. This was part of the reason they were protected, or they were selected, because these were areas where they were initially low. The control group post-test ratings on the target scales were still much lower than the non-target scales. The intervention uh, post-test ratings were all much higher. Target scales were now similar to non-target scales. So the intervention not only improved teaching effectiveness in general, they improved the targeted uh, uh, scales much more than the non-target scales. Consistent with the rationale uh, for the study, ratings and targeted scales improved substantially relative to the non-target areas for experimental groups, but not for the control groups. So the most important results of the investigation were to provide varying degrees of support for a priori predictions that seek feedback and feedback consultation provided an effective means of improving university teaching. The effects were stronger for initially less effective teachers. In support of the multidimensional SEEK perspective, the improvement was largest for targeted SEEK scales. The, uh, it was important that teachers uh, to specifically target particular scales. An important aspect of this was the teaching packets. Even if teachers are motivated to improve their teaching, they apparently don't know how to do so. They spend more time, and it doesn't do any good. Uh, the, the suggestion is, is that they may not know how to improve their teaching, so they need concrete strategies to facilitate uh, teaching improvement efforts. However, few universities implement teaching improvement programs as part of the collection of student evaluations, even though there's clear evidence that they work. Now, what happens when sets are used without consultation intervention? Well, the longitudinal results that I showed you earlier show that results are remarkably stable over 13 years, so apparently not much of anything. So, 
in conclusion of this part of the uh, presentation, let me return to my original conclusions. Uh, student evaluations based on teachers the unit of analysis are multidimensional, reliable and stable, valid, relatively unbiased, and seem to be useful by many stakeholders. Let me now move to a somewhat different issue, uh, using student ratings to benchmark universities. Several countries, particularly Australia and UK, use ratings of graduating university students to evaluate the, quote, overall educational experience. The critical issue is that the univit analysis is the whole university or departments within university. So I've done large-scale studies uh, based on the Australian course experience questionnaire and the UK national student survey. So uh, here's the summary of the results of, uh, for the UK research that I've done that are on the Higher Education Academy website. This is actually quite remarkable because they knew that my results were going to be probably negative uh, for what they were willing to do. And they gave me access to the data and even gave me some funding to do the research. So I was quite, I was quite impressed with uh, their openness. In this, the UK study, all graduating uh, UK universities university students were asked by the government to complete the national student survey. The response was quite good for survey research, 65%. Uh, the data used in my research is very large, 150,000 ratings from 140 universities on each of two different years. The critical question is, are the ratings uh, able to differentiate between universities and departments within universities? Realize that this is basically a reliability question. So uh, are the ratings able to reliably differentiate between universities? So here we have a caterpillar plot for the differences between universities based on the National Student Survey Global Ratings. Each triangle is the mean satisfaction rating for one university. The vertical line that goes above uh, and below the mean is an error bar, the range of probable error. Longer error bars represent more error. The solid blue line is the mean rating across all universities. For example, this university has a mean rating of four-tenths of a standard deviation below the average across all universities. The error bar is a probable error. Uh, here it is, uh, ranges from minus 0.2 to minus 0.7. So that error bar is completely below the mean. The caterpillar is useful com for comparing universities. A few universities are below average, that is the whole error bar is below the mean. A few universities are above average, the error bar is completely above the mean. Most universities are not significantly different from average. The error bar overlaps with the mean. So they're not very good at differentiating between universities. Here we're looking at how well they differentiate between departments. There's actually more variance defined, uh, explained by department levels, but the error bars are much bigger so that uh, there's only a little bit of differentiation at the extreme ends. Uh, these are departments, uh, either departments within the same university or the same department across different universities. Uh, so that there's even less differentiation at the departmental level than there is at the university level. Uh, at long last, I was able to get access to the Australian data. Uh, it took me ages to get access to uh, this data uh, because you now know about 
uh, uh, caterpillar plots. I'll show you. Here's the caterpillar plots for uh, departments and across universities. And you, so you can see there's even less differentiation between universities in the Australian context than there is in the uh, UK context. The Australians also developed a, a, a rating of PhD students of the postgraduate research experience questionnaire. And you can see the caterpillar plot here. There's none of the uh, universities that had uh, any significant differences. And not surprisingly, the, uh, the ratings for each university were unrelated to research productivity, number of Australian uh, PhD student scholarships awarded, and attrition rates. So we concluded that the PREC responses were unlikely to be useful for any purposes for which they were designed, including benchmarking or improving PhD uh, programs. Not making me very popular with some of the uh, Australian policy people. Uh, for purposes of comparison, uh, consider a caterpillar block plot based upon student evaluations of teaching. These data are the, uh, uh, the ones I looked at earlier, the longitudinal study of 195 teachers over 13 years. So this is very demanding. So this is ratings over 13 years where you expect that there would be some sort of uh, uh, regression to the mean. The ratings of individual teachers are highly differentiated relative to, uh, to in National Student Survey and CEQ type ratings. There's large differences between teachers relative to probable error. Many teachers are consistently above or below uh, average across the 13 uh, years. So this is another variation of the uh, graph that I showed you before. So, uh, in summary, there's no basis for using CEQ or National Student Survey type approaches instead of student evaluations or vice versa. They have different purposes. However, there is limited rigorous evidence that the uh, CEQ responses are reliable, valid, or useful for much of any purposes. The substantial student evaluation literature in support of the reliability and validity and usefulness should not be used to justify National Student Survey type ratings. The National Student Survey type ratings should only be used with extreme caution for benchmarking purposes. And if they're used at all, they should be uh, qualified by estimates of probable error, uh, as, in the, uh, uh, as in the caterpillar plots. Now, let me now talk about a research project that I've just in the process of undertaking with some colleagues at Durham. I've always wanted to look at the student evaluations in the school level. There's no reason why uh, 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 high school students can't uh, evaluate teaching effectiveness on uh, this instrument or perhaps a different instrument, but I've never gotten access. Uh, I had one extreme case where uh, this was in the TAFE uh, sector, which is somewhere between high school and, uh, and university uh, technical education sector in Australia. And I had a master's degree student that was very high up in this, uh, in this organization. And we constructed a, a study. This was not a major study, but uh, there were three different student evaluation instruments. And uh, he uh, asked each of anonymous, uh, a large group of anonymous students to select a representative good, not so good, uh, good, average, and poor, or not so good teacher. The students were anonymous. 
The teachers they selected were anonymous. He had ticked all the boxes and he gotten all the uh, 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 approvals and everything like this. And the teacher federation found out about uh, the study midway through the study and they closed it down. Uh, they stopped it. And then uh, uh, through repeated negotiations after a month, they agreed to let him finish collecting the data, but they put a 10-year embargo on his thesis. So the thesis was not able to, uh, was in a locked cabinet uh, for 10 years. Now, uh, one of the things I'm quite excited about is that uh, Peter Tim's uh, organization has put out a call. He's got a large collective uh, of schools that he works with where he does school reports, and he put out uh, a call for volunteers to be involved in a, uh, a study of student evaluations. These are for senior high school uh, uh, students and got a pretty good response. I think there were something like 60 uh, uh, schools, so a large enough sample so that we'll be able to look at this. And uh, you know, uh, I think pretty much all of the teachers in 50 or 60 schools. I'm not sure the numbers yet, but fairly large numbers. And eventually uh, he's going to, uh, we're going to try and look at the uh, feedback improvement uh, and whether or not that works with, uh, at the high school level as well as it works at the uh, university level. And it's really quite an interesting to look at the juxtaposition between the school and the university. I mean, uh, this is amazing, this is how, Teaching effectiveness is evaluated at the university level, and it's just totally different than uh, the way it's evaluated at the school level. So at the school level, uh, researchers and policymakers are so focused on test scores as the only outcome of effective teaching. And so I'm, I'm hoping that this, it may be a time where people are so fed up with uh, test scores being the only basis. I'm not saying that test scores shouldn't be one of the criteria. That's, uh, that's quite reasonable. But I'm hoping that maybe the student evaluations of teaching effectiveness uh, could be implemented as an alternative way of measuring teaching effectiveness. And so next time I talk to you, I'll tell you whether or not uh, the research with Peter Timms uh, that I'm doing with Peter Timms is working out all right. <laughs>